Well, I'm going to begin with a quote by Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon wrote this, um, an interesting quote that I've thought about much over the years, that the system of truth is not one straight line, but two. I think of a train tracks, the two rails there on the train track, and no man will ever get a right view of the gospel until... Uh, he knows how to look at the two lines at once. Now, he's thinking of something in particular there, and I'm not interested in going into what he's thinking about, but I'm, I'm actually taking this quote to communicate a point that many doctrines of Scripture cannot be reduced to a single statement. It's very interesting. If you study the Word of God, there's a lot of doctrines that you just can't reduce them to one statement, but often Scripture teaches us and often leads us to hold two seemingly conflicting truths Intention. So let me give some examples. For instance, we are told in the Word of God that God is sovereign over our lives, that He's sovereign in salvation. And yet, it also tells us very much that we are responsible, that we are responsible creatures. And we feel like those two come in the tension at times, right? Uh, but they are both there. We are told, for instance, that we are justified by faith. You agree with me? By faith alone. And yet, we are also told in the Word of God that we will be judged according to our works. And it doesn't just say that once, it says it over and over and over again. The final judgment is based on works. True's intention. We're told that Jesus is fully God. But then we're also told he's fully man. True's intention. And you come to this again and again and again. Truths which may at first seem contradictory, but are ultimately complementary. Does that make sense? They all ultimately complement each other. And if there's a tension here, the tension is purposeful. These truths provide a much-needed balance in our theology. Now, what we're coming to here, what I want to do, as this is by way of introduction, to kind of set the tone for what we're going to look at tonight, is I want us to consider the doctrine of assurance of salvation. Or some call it eternal security. And when we come to what the Word of God says about assurance of salvation, eternal security, we come again not to one single truth, but to two truths that are in tension. What are these two truths? Well, here's the first truth. The first, first truth is that only those who continue in their faith all the way until death or the second coming of Jesus will be saved. Only those who persevere to the end will be saved. That's the first truth uh, that has to do with this doctrine of assurance. Let me back this up with some verses because it's very important to have the Word of God. And, and I'm doing this quickly because this is all introduction. We're not trying to do a full, comprehensive understanding of the doctrine of assurance, but but it's important for what we're looking at tonight. Matthew 10:22, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. These are Jesus' words. Do you agree with them? The ones who endures to the end will be saved. Amen, right? This is true. John 8.31, Jesus said, I was saying to those Jews who had believed him, note the conditional, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Do you hear that emphasis on if you continue? The emphasis on, on you, you know, enduring to the end. 
Colossians 1, 21, 20 to 23, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So this is something that God has done, right? You who were alienated, you were far off. He's brought you near. He's saved you. He's, he's, he's present to, in order to present you holy and blameless. And look at verse 23. If. I should unsettle you a little bit, maybe. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. One more, Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ. And again, the conditional. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, how long? Firm all the way until the end, right? So do you understand this first truth that Scripture teaches us regarding this doctrine of assurance is that only those who continue in their faith all the way to the end are saved, will be saved. But there's a second truth. Because if you only believe this truth, you will have an imbalance in your theology. Everything will be up to you. And all the you know, all the burden of of salvation will be on you in a sense, right? You have to endure to the end. But there's a balancing truth, and it's this, that all true believers will continue in their faith until, the, until death or the second coming of Jesus. How? By the power of God. They will be kept by the power of God. And this is so important to have this twin truth side by side because it means that enduring to the end is ultimately not something dependent on my effort, but upon God's sustaining power. Here's some verses to quote here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is Jesus speaking, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Isn't that a wonderful... We definitely gravitate to these verses, wouldn't we? These are the comforting verses. Romans 8.30, And those He predestined, and the thought is here is that all whom He predestined, He called. And all whom He called, He also justified. And all or those He justified, He also glorified. That is, the idea here is that no one slips between the cracks from predestination to glorification, but he brings them all through. Philippians 1.6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The one who began the good work, he will complete it. He will bring it to, the, you know, bring it to completion. Do you see these truths in tension? Is, is this clear, uh, what we're talking about here? Uh, Leon Morris Oh, I don't have this in my notes. Oh, well, it's all right. Leon Morris, he writes this. It says, It's one of the precious things about the Christian faith that our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble hold of Christ, but on His firm grip of us. Isn't that wonderful? God has a grip on our lives. Um, but there is this tension. And the tension is between, is my eternal security dependent on my effort or on God's power? It's an interesting question. Is it dependent on my effort or on God's power? Is my assurance based on my subjective experience or on the objective truths of the gospel? 
Is the Christian life characterized by strenuous effort or by peaceful assurance? What is it? Yes, right, yes. Now, we all want to choose the latter, of course. We all want to say that it's based on God, it's based on peaceful assurance and resting in Him, but the Word of God teaches us that it's really both, that it's both. And to deny the former is to ignore an important balancing truth. One of the most difficult things, I believe, in the Christian life is to hold to the whole counsel of God, to hold to all of it. We tend to gravitate towards certain truths and ignore other truths. And the real challenge is to hold to the whole Word of God. These two truths held in tension and applied correctly are of enormous benefit to believers. They have two applications. It's two truths that have two applications. There's a negative application. And the negative application is this. These truths should produce worry and fear in those who are not walking with God. That is, you apply that first truth. truth. If you're not walking with God, if you're living in unrepentant sin, you can come to someone and say, look, Jesus said if you don't endure to the end, you won't be saved. Right? And, and warn them and plead with them to repent. But on the other hand, there's a positive application. These truths should bring, produce comfort and assurance to those who are walking with God. Right? If we are truly saved, we will persevere in faith. And we are assured that we belong to God and that He's keeping us by His power. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe that the moment you come to Jesus Christ, you can have assurance of salvation. But I also believe this, that assurance of salvation is something that can grow in the Christian life. It can grow over time. In other words, if you're walking with the Lord, you should have more assurance today than you had a year ago. Um, it, It is something that grows as we demonstrate the reality of the new birth. It's not that assurance is ultimately based on self-effort, not at all. But this doctrine of assurance of salvation is based on the reality of the new birth. A new birth that transforms a person from the inside out. Does that make sense? And, and it, it exerts its power from within, outwardly, so that God's people are people who lived a different kind of life. They long after holiness, and they can no longer live in habitual sin. So that is my introduction. It's the doctrine of assurance with these two truths in tension. Now I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. We're back in 1 Corinthians tonight, like we were last week, and we're in a passage that, that is emphasizing the subjective walk of believers. That is, it is applying the negative application that we were just looking at right here. It's warning the Corinthians, look, watch out. You should worry and fear because you're not walking with God. You should worry and fear. It's a warning because you are committing acts of idolatry. In other words, it is focused on the first truth that only those who persevere to the end will be saved. And I just wanted to make sure that you don't come away tonight thinking that that's the only truth on this question of assurance. There is another side to it that we just talked about. The Corinthians are thinking that they stand, they're standing spiritually. They think they're okay. They think they're doing great. And Paul comes along and says, things aren't looking so good. 
the Corinthians were participating in idolatrous meals. On Sunday, they were gathering with God's people and they were, you know, taking, they were, they were hearing the word of God and they were participating in the Lord's Supper. And then during the week, they were going off and they were attending idolatrous cultic meals, eating and drinking before idols and perhaps engaging even in immoral behavior. In the New Testament, both Old and New Testament, immorality and idolatry are always together. They're, they're, they're interrelated. And Paul is saying, watch out. Be careful. You cannot commit adultery. Uh, you cannot commit idolatry and then come on Sunday and and worship God. You can't live this twin life. Choose this day whom you will serve. This is the type of passage that we are in. And they were committing these acts of idolatry without any sense of guilt or fear or remorse. They thought that they were okay. And so Paul has to drive home to the Corinthians the first of these applications that flow from a proper understanding of assurance. Paul is seeking to erode an improper assurance of salvation. You you know, don't think you're okay. You're not okay. And this is what he is seeking to do. And this is a danger. The danger of passivity and presumption in the Christian life. The danger of thinking that we're secure when we're deliberately actually choosing to walk in sin. And this is possible. It's possible to be so deceived that we think that we're okay, that we're right with God, when actually we're living a life of idolatry and immorality. And this is the kind of passage that we're in. So I want to pick up here in verse 24. Chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know, says Paul, that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. And I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In other words, he's saying, be careful. It's not because, and this is where he's going to go next, it's not because you're baptized and you're a member of the church that heaven is guaranteed. There is a holy life to be lived. There is a faithful life to be lived. And in order to demonstrate the dangers, he's going to remind them of Israel in the wilderness. It is... What he's saying here is the proper attitude in the Christian life is not, well, I'm okay, everything's okay, you know, it is passive, a kind of a passive attitude towards the Christian life. He's saying, no, the, the proper attitude towards the Christian life is an active, I am determined to win the prize, and I'm going to do everything it takes in order not to be disqualified. It's this active diligence, I'm going to run this race. Now, what Paul does then is he moves into chapter 10 and, and this is where he is going to warn them, warn them of the danger that they're in. And I want you to note that there, Paul assumes that there is a deep continuity in the ways that God deals with his people both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. He calls them to remember the children of Israel in the wilderness that they have important lessons to teach us. Now I find this fascinating because I hope you've realized this far we've drawn a lot of parallels from Israel in the wilderness. Uh, There's a lot of parallels to the Christian life between the children of Israel in the wilderness and the church 
uh, right now. And we're actually going to draw some more parallels uh, in the future from this. All right, so what I want us to do is read chapter 10, verses 1 down to 14. It's a longer section, but it fits together, and we need to hear it. So here he's giving his, he's, he's saying, run the race. This is his call in chapter end of chapter 9. Now he says, why? For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Now, that's kind of the title of our series, but they were written for us. They were written down for our instruction, us upon whom the end of the ages have come. Verse 12, here's the warning. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, let him who thinks he's okay, take heed, watch out, that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Now, what I want to do is summarize this passage briefly and then allow it to launch us back into the Old Testament, and then it'll bring us back into this passage. How can we summarize? Ah, I missed some blanks. The blank is warning. Okay, next. How do we summarize this passage? First of all, the privileges that are enjoyed. Note that Paul begins by describing these privileges. They benefited, the children of Israel benefited from certain tokens of God's grace. They went through a baptism of sorts. They ate the manna daily. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They drank from the water that flowed from the rock. And yet, there was a problem. They failed in their responsibility. They failed to live a holy life. They failed to trust in God. They craved evil things. They took for granted God's blessings and provisions. They failed to endure to the end. And what was the outcome? I'm just... Pretty, this is pretty simple here as we walk in through this passage. What was the outcome? Well, he says they perished in the wilderness. That was the outcome. They all perished in the wilderness. They never made it into the promised land, is what he says in verse 5, for they were laid low in the wilderness. And so the application is clear. The Corinthians, he says, you too also enjoy certain privileges. And you too are failing in your responsibilities. And he says, watch out, you know, be careful that you too, you too might fail to enter into the promised land, a greater promised land, a promised land of heaven. You see, heaven and hell are in the balance here. Now embedded in this passage is a curious and startling phrase, the rock was Christ. 
The rock was Christ. This rock that water flowed out from was Christ. So I want to answer two questions tonight. How does the rock in Exodus from which water flowed represent Christ? So we're going to think about the Christological aspect of this. And then secondly, we want to ask this question. How does the story, everything we learn from that, with its Christological implications, how does it relate to what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians? And we want to end with that. So two questions. First, has to do with the rock from which water flowed. So if you turn back to Exodus 17, this is where we find the story of the rock, Moses striking the rock and water flowing out. It's in Exodus chapter 17. Uh, it's a fairly short story, verses 1 through 7. We're going to read it all and then make a few comments on it. Are you all following so far? Okay, so I'm trying to set the overall tone of 1 Corinthians 10. We noted that it is launching us back in the Old Testament because of this statement, the rock was Christ. And we're going to try to build on that and get back to 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Hopefully we can make it, okay? Exodus 17, verse 1. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Shin according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Does that sound familiar? Well, it is. Um, Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Fascinating story here. Um, And we want to pay attention to particular details. First of all, I want you to note um, that God has just delivered his people out of Egypt. They've crossed the Red Sea and they are making their way traditionally down into the Sinai Peninsula where there is where Mount Sinai is located. God has already provided water at a place called Marah. He's provided them with meat. He's provided them with manna, daily bread. And now we read that they have come, uh, that they have been journeying in stages and they've come to this place called Rephidim. Now what's fascinating to me is that is this little note here in verse 1 that says they have been journeyed they've been they're journeying by stages and it says according to the command of the Lord. Now that's fascinating to me and, and and actually somewhat encouraging. I hope it's encouraging to you to see that God is not just a God who has a goal in mind to get them to Mount Sinai, but he's also interested in the process of getting them there. Does that make sense? And he's causing them to travel in stages, and it's all according to his command. Now, God is leading his people to Mount Sinai. In fact, if you remember, back at the burning bush, 
God appears to Moses and says, Moses, you're the man. You're going to go and you're going to get these people out of Egypt. And when you bring them out of Egypt, this is what God tells them. You will bring them to this mountain. What mountain? Where is Moses at when the burning bush takes place? He's at Mount Horeb. He's at Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. And so they're traveling in, in these stages and they're uh, working their way there. Now, they're in this place called Rephidim. And Rephidim, we're not sure exactly where it is, but we're told there's no water. And this is a picture of the Sinai Peninsula. So it gives you kind of an idea of Imagine being here with two million people. It doesn't look promising, does it? And there's no water, and they've run out of water, and they start to grumble. Now, again, I just don't want you to lose sight of the fact that they're there by God's command. Isn't that interesting? By God's command, He has brought them to a place where they are thirsty. Now, is that possible? And do you realize that perhaps by God's command, He might lead you into a place of need? a place of suffering, a place where you're cast on Him. Um, God is testing His people. You see it in Psalm 81, verse 7. He says, I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Well, this is the waters of Meribah, the water from the rock. So God is testing His people to see if they will trust in Him, to see if they will turn to Him or turn against Him. And what do they do? Well, they turn against Him, do they not? Because at this point in the story, you'd be thinking, look, God took you through the Red Sea and God now has provided water and bread and meat and like, you can trust Him. You know, like, you know, this is what God does. He puts you in a situation so that you can turn to Him. But again, they turn against Him and they test, the people test God. Now, they've previously grumbled, but it seems here that we have a heightened response from the people. The people here quarrel with God. And it is this Hebrew word, reeve. Uh, it's the, the idea of quarreling. And it can mean this. It can denote a physically violent conflict. I'm not sure if there was physical violence involved here. And yet it was moving towards physical violence, was it not? Because Moses himself is going, they're about to stone me. It, the verb can refer to verbal conflict, a dispute, an argument. The people are angry. What's interesting about the word that, though, is that often when it is used, it has legal judicial overtones. That is, it refers to the act of arguing a case against someone. The people here are testing God. They have a dispute with God. They are contending with Moses as if to bring a lawsuit against him. They are challenging him. They are suing God, in a sense. I'm going to sue you. That should make sense to us Americans. We're sue-happy people, aren't we? Um, And they're saying, this isn't fair. You know, we do not deserve to be thirsty. Who's the guilty party here? You know, someone's got to pay for what's going on. It's somebody goofed up, and it's clearly not us. And they're aiming, you know, they're, they're pointing their finger at Moses and by extension at God. Note that this is more than a complaint. They want to punish the responsible party. They want to punish someone. They want justice. And Moses recognizes that things are pretty dire. And he turns to God, does he not? And what does God do? God gives a series of instructions that are fascinating. He says, pass on before the people and go. Start hiking, Moses. Make sure everybody sees you go. Go to Horeb. Now, Moses knows where that is because, of course, he's been there before. Um, We were just mentioning that, that that's where he saw the burning bush. I'm going to skip this passage. 
scholars, inter- uh, commentators, they're not because we're not sure where Rephidim is and we don't really know where Mount Sinai actually is, it's hard to tell how far apart these two places are. But it seems as if Rephidim is the last stop before getting to Mount Sinai, which would possibly put it 12 to 25 miles from Mount Sinai. So when God tells Moses to go and go to Mount Horeb, he's telling him to walk quite a ways, very possibly. This might be a whole day's journey. Like, go and walk and, 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 and you know, take a hike. <laughs> start, start walking. Um, what is going to happen here is going to happen at some distance from the camp. That's the main point to get here. When a judicial act was carried out, it often took place outside the camp, outside the city. This is all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament. This is very typical. When you're going to stone someone, you drag them out of the city and you stone them outside the city. You don't stone them in the city. And this seems to be something that's going on here. There's a judicial act that's going to take place. And he says, go out of the camp. Take a hike. Go. And then he says, take some elders of Israel. Make sure you have some legal witnesses with you. Okay, take some elders. And then he says, take the rod with which you struck the Nile. This is fascinating because he doesn't say, take the rod with which you opened up the Red Sea. You know, he says, take the rod with which you struck the Nile. Now the rod here is explicitly connected with the first plague of judgment. And so this, the connection that God seems to be making here for Moses that this is not a rod of salvation that he used to take, but a rod of judgment. The word nakah, the right strike, uh, that we find later, you're to strike the rock, is an interesting word because it means to hit a person or object or beat, hit multiple times, or commonly to kill or strike dead. So often in the Hebrew Old Testament, when you see that someone was struck dead, it's this word. It's to, to strike them dead. And so Moses, just as Moses struck the Nile, I mean, think about it. When Moses struck the Nile with his rod, what, what happened to the Nile? It turned to what? It turned to blood, right? In a sense, he killed the Nile. He struck it and killed it. And this is the rod that he is to take with him, a rod of judgment, not of salvation. And then he... And then we read this. He said, God says, I will stand before you on the rock. And this is perhaps the most startling piece of information because God says that he will stand before Moses and the greater never stands before the lesser. This is very unusual. Moses stands before God, but God does not stand before Moses. But here God says, I will stand before you. And God is going to stand before Moses as a criminal might stand before a judge. Wow, this is Yahweh. This is God. And he says, I'm going to stand before you. He's going to say, I'm going to stand on or over the rock. That is, God is identifying himself with that rock. I'm going to stand before you. And then you have the last piece of instruction to Moses. And he says, strike the rock. Strike the rock. And just as Moses nakad the Nile and killed it, he is to nakad the rock in judgment. And this is profound. Get a picture of this. Here is Moses with his rod. You have elders who are witnesses to what's happening, legal witnesses. You have the people who are the accusing party. And there you have God 
who has really taken the place of the accused. He is standing before them all. And then God tells Moses, you nakami, you strike me. It's quite amazing. Note that God is standing on trial. But ultimately, God is the judge, is he not? Because who's giving the instructions here? Is it not God giving instructions? It is Yahweh who's giving these instructions. It is Yahweh who is passing sentence on himself. It is God who is pronouncing the verdict guilty and saying, strike me. But who's guilty? Who has sinned here? Who are the, who, who, who are the ones who've grumbled? Who are the ones who have accused? The people, right? Was it not the people? They deserve to be struck. But God here takes their place. And Moses strikes God in judgment. And what's incredible is that instead of bloody water coming out, life-giving water begins to flow from that rock. And it didn't just trickle. I mean, it had to flow in quantities in order to, to give water for that many people. It had to be just a gush of water coming out of that rock. Judgment brought life, not death. Edmund Clowney writes that people had cried in the accusation of unbelief, Is the Lord among us or not? Yes, the Lord was among them in a way that they could not have imagined. There he stood upon the rock, not only among them, but in their place, bearing their condemnation. And so in conclusion, I believe Moses must have understood what was going on because years later, towards the end of Moses' life, he taught the Israelites a song in which he remembers this event. And here's a verse, a couple of verses out of that song, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. Now, isn't that fascinating? He says, he says, ascribe greatness to our God. Who is he? He's the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are just. A God of a faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Now, I want you to note there, God is equated to the rock and it is connected with this constant theme of righteousness, justice. He did what was right. Fascinating. Well, how does this rock correspond to Christ? I'm not going to spend much time here because it's so clear how it represents Christ, is it not? The, the, the imagery here is so vivid. What does this have to do with Christ? Well, 1,500 years later, Paul will look back on that story and say, hey, the rock was Jesus Christ. The rock was Christ. So what do we make of this? Well, let me just summarize it. Once again, God in Jesus comes to deliver His people, to work in exodus for His people, but this time not from political bondage, but from spiritual bondage. Once again, Jesus, God in Jesus, manifests Himself in miraculous ways, providing meat and bread and healing the sick and raising the dead and doing all sorts of miraculous deeds, just like the Israelites saw in the wilderness. Once again, Jesus, God, that is Jesus. And I'm, again, I'm just pointing to the fact that Jesus is God, right? So God, Jesus, is put to the test. The people of Israel assume this posture of unbelief. The religious leaders cry out, show us a sign, you know, prove yourself to us. And once again, Jesus is placed 
on trial. God is placed on trial. He stands as the accused before the people of Israel. And even though the people passed sentence on Jesus, ultimately God was issuing the verdict of guilty on himself. Now, picture that. What you have with Jesus before Pilate is very similar to what you have with Moses in front of that rock with the people accusing. And then you have once again God, that is Jesus, is punished. He is nakad for the sins of the people. And this type is fulfilled literally as a spear, which is a rod, is driven into his side. It's incredible. The, the, the accuracy with which God fulfills His Word. And once again, life-giving water flows from the place of judgment. John points to the fact that this literally took place. That when that soldier drove that rod into Jesus' side, we are told that blood and water flowed out. Isn't that incredible? The, 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 the picture there? And once again, we could say, God's people, we are taught to sing of Christ our rock, who has displayed his justice and righteousness by taking the blow of judgment that we deserved. Beautiful picture of what Christ has accomplished for us. Now, we want to end our time tonight by going back to 1 Corinthians 10 because where we find that connection is in 1 Corinthians 10. That's where Paul says the rock was Christ. right? And so we need to make sense of how does that fit into what Paul is trying to say in 1 Corinthians because one thing I'm very concerned about is that we are sensitive to the context of each passage both in the Old and in the New Testament. So I just want to make a few Final points, points of application to bring this home to us tonight. And the first point I'll make is simply this. Jesus was struck with the rod of judgment so that we could drink of the water of life. And I'm just pulling that application from this parallel that we see. He was struck with the rod of judgment so that we can drink from the water of life. God in Christ responds to our sin and rebellion, not by striking us, but by striking his own son, by taking Jesus taking the punishment upon himself so that we can experience his grace. The water here, I believe, in 1 Corinthians is simply a picture of the blessings that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it all flows from where? It all flows from the cross, doesn't it? It all flows from the fact that He took our judgment. He took our punishment. But the second point I want to make is this, and we're going to spend a little longer here. Partaking of the benefits which flow from the cross of Jesus does not automatically make us immune from falling into sin. I want us to think about this point. Because this is a point that Paul is trying to make to the Corinthians. It's not because you're partaking of the benefits of the cross that you're now protected or kept automatically from sin. I could put it even in a different way. It's not because we partake in the benefits which flow from the cross that our sin becomes neutralized. So we're not automatically protected from sin, but on the other hand, it doesn't necessarily, the cross, um, the, benefiting from the, the blessings of the cross doesn't just neutralize our sin. Let me give you an example. I used to work construction. 
And I worked with a co-worker who was Catholic. And he was seemingly a devout Catholic. And he would explain his thinking to us. And it went something like this. I don't, I'm not saying all Catholics think this way, but this is the way he thought. Uh, he says, I can, you know, he would tell us, I can go on the weekends and I can party pretty hard. I can live a, a, a drunken and immoral life. I, it's no big deal. You know, because then what I do is, you know, on uh, uh, then I go to my priest and I confess my sin and then I partake in Mass and, and I'm okay. You know, and this is the way he was thinking. I, I can go over here and sin it up and then come over here and take communion and confess my sin to the priest and it this neutralizes this. Does that make sense? The, the, the benefits neutralize the sin and I'm, and I'm good. Now the problem is that we can fall into the same trap, you know. I go, you know, we go to church and, and and we partake in communion and we sing these songs and we enjoy it and then we go out into the week and we deliberately commit sin and we can begin to be deceived to think that this neutralizes this. That because I've got, you know, because I go to church then my sin doesn't matter anymore. And Paul is saying, watch out. Watch out. You cannot serve two masters. You have to serve one or the other. That is, it's possible to taste of many good gifts that flow from the cross of Jesus Christ and yet not enter into the promised land of heaven. It's possible to experience a lot of the gifts that come from the cross and yet not make it to the end. This is, this is what Paul is trying to communicate here and warning them of. Think about the children of Israel. We are told that they stayed there at the base of Mount Sinai for about a year. Um, it's there that they built the tabernacle. It's there where Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God um, a couple times. And most likely, I can't prove this, but most likely they drank from the water from the rock that whole time. Like they needed water. And most likely that was the source of water for those people that entire time, for a whole year. Now, if this is the case, then they're still drinking that gracious water when they decide to build a golden calf and worship it. Think about that. They're drinking from this water while they're committing acts of idolatry and immorality. And all, and, and, and what we are to take from this is that all the benefits they experienced did not automatically produce a holy life in, in them. Does, does that make sense? It doesn't automatically make us godly. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, and he's saying to us tonight, partaking of God's benefits does not guarantee his favor. Now, this is a stronger word tonight, but one that we need to hear. Partaking of God's benefits does not guarantee his favor. Say that to yourself. Look at verse 5 in chapter 10. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Here were a people. They went through the Red Sea, that baptism of swords. They drank from manna. I mean, they ate the manna. They drank from the water. All these gracious gifts. And yet he said, but many of them. With most of them, God was not well pleased and they were laid low in the wilderness. That's, that's a, quite a serious word, isn't it? In other words, we can be baptized. We can partake of communion. 
We can listen and understand and enjoy the preaching of God's Word. We can benefit from the fellowship of believers. We can even sense and experience the presence of God among His people and yet fail to live a holy life. Fail to flee idolatry. Fail to persevere in our faith to the end. That His life can be all around us and it not be in us. Does that make sense? And so Paul says in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I want to be clear here. Paul uh, is, is speaking to those who are taking sin lightly. Just, just to be clear, he's, he's speaking to people who are taking sin lightly. And this is a call to repentance. It's a call to the Corinthians to repent. It's a call to holiness. It's a call to perseverance. And if you should throw up your hands and say, but you don't understand what I'm going through. You, know? you don't understand my life. You don't understand the kind of temptation I'm going through. It's not possible for me to live a holy life. I've done everything I can and it's not possible. If you should do so, then you need to read verse 13, the very next verse. And what does it say there? No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Are you overtaken by a temptation? And Paul, God, is telling you, That temptation is common to man. Do not say to yourself, no one understands me. No one has gone through what I've gone through. It's common to humanity. And then this very encouraging word in in verse 13, and God is faithful. God is faithful. Here we're seeing a glimpse of that other side of the doctrine of assurance. God's got His hand on your life. Okay, And if you truly belong to Him, if, if you belong to Jesus Christ, then He is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to literally bear up underneath it. And it's communicating something to us. It's communicating to us the reality that God doesn't come and just remove the temptation from our life. He says, there's a way of escape. Take the way of escape. But the temptation will still be there. And you have to take that way of escape maybe again and again and again and again. And the temptation will still be there, but you will be able to bear up under it. Instead of collapsing under the temptation, you'll be able to bear up under the temptation. Why? Because God provides a way of escape. And because God provides a way of escape, verse 14, Paul can then say to you and to me, flee idolatry. Why? See, we're responsible beings. God is faithful, but He commands us, flee from idolatry. All right, one final point that I want to make, and I want to bring this all the way to... We started with assurance of salvation. I want to end with assurance of salvation. One final point. Assurance of salvation must not be derived from the enjoyment of the life-giving benefits of the cross, but rather from the life-transforming power of the cross to produce true faith and holiness. How do we know that we belong to God? How do we know that we're on our way to the celestial city, as John Bunyan writes? 
not because of the tokens of God's grace which we receive and experience. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is don't derive your assurance of salvation from going to church, from taking communion, from being baptized, from singing songs, from, from, from fellowship with believers, and from, from just the benefits that flow from the cross. No, derive your assurance from the good fruits that are produced within you, which is evidence of a spiritual heart transplant. Jesus said, by their, by your, by their fruit, what? You will know them, right? By their fruit, you will know them. And so the questions we need to ask ourselves tonight is, are we running the race in such a way that we're, that we're going to win? And do we have that kind of uh, attitude with which we take on the Christian life? Are we dealing with, seriously with sin and temptation in our life? Or are we trifling with it? Are we fleeing from idolatry? Or have we allowed ourselves to become consumed with pursuits that have displaced God? So big questions to ask ourselves. And in so doing, see, it's possible that there's something about sin that deceives us. It's inherently deceitful. And it's possible for us to fall into idolatry and be consumed with things other than God and in so doing, fooling ourselves into thinking that we're okay because we go to church and because exter- on, the, on the external, we're keeping up this Christian life. Does that make sense? And if so, we're in a dangerous place. We're right where the Corinthians were. They were in a dangerous place. They thought they were okay. They thought they were immune. But they were in sin. And Paul says, watch out. And we need a warning. We need the warning that Paul gives right here. And the encouraging thing, I want to end with an encouraging note. The encouraging thing is that God's people will respond to his warnings. See, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And so if there's sin in your life, the warnings act God is using the warnings, the warning tonight even in your life to call you to repentance, to call you to keep persevering in your faith to the end, to call you to turn and flee from idolatry. He's using the warning to that end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the... uh, comforting, encouraging parts of it. But we also thank you for the more difficult, warning, challenging passages. Thank you that you care for us. And that your desire for us is that we persevere. Lord, put that within us. Enable us, each of us, to be those who endure to the end. Father, we thank you that ultimately we are kept by your power. You have begun a good work. You will complete it. We thank you for these twin truths tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.